But uh, anyways, we are in John chapter 6 today, and uh, excited to go through this text with you all, though it is small, and uh, as I'm studying it, I'm thinking, man, this thing is going to be so fast, like it'll be like a 15-minute sermon today. It was a little more than 15 minutes for first service, so just, you know, don't get too excited for that 15 minutes. Uh, John 6, I'm going to pray for us as we get started. Oh Lord, this small 15 verse section telling of a miracle that we're very familiar with, if anyone's been in the church for very long, I pray that you would help us to see the deep just message that uh, is behind what you're doing here, Lord. And that we, like the disciples, might find hope in you wherever we're hopeless. Um, Use this text to just press into us a love for Jesus and press out of us faith and trust in Jesus. And uh, glorify your name in the couple different rooms that are meeting here as we just express our value for being with you uh, as we're here today. We just love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15 is where we're at today. Um, You may know it from the heading in your Bible as the feeding of the 5,000. One sermon that I listened to this week entitled it, Another Miracle, which may be kind of a bland title for this message, you know, like, oh, another miracle. But have you ever heard anyone talk about miracles like that? I mean, we've seen the Lord do some stuff in this church, some incredible things. And we've never been like, it's just another miracle. You know, it's always been with the tone of, he's done it again, everybody. He is incredible. And that is, I think, the heart in John here, telling of another miracle. Uh, It was in my reading this week that I found... uh, it wasn't a title, but I was like, man, this would be a great title for this sermon. It was an F.F. Bruce when he called this a huge catering problem, okay? Uh, it's a huge catering problem that the disciples come across here, and they're going to find that they can trust in the Lord. Now, this is the only miracle during Jesus' ministry that is recorded in all four of the Gospels, Okay? All four of the Gospels mention this. There's a few differences as you read them. The differences between the Gospels are very minor. And there's always a reason behind those differences. The different points of view, different aspects and themes that the authors are trying to get across. And so why would John, the evangelist, also known as John the Revelator, why would he write it the way that he does with the minor differences? They have to do with the great theme that he's trying to get across here. And that is found in the key verse of the book of John. John chapter 20, verse 31, tells us that this whole gospel was written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Another word for Christ might mean that he's the Savior, that he is the anointed one, that he's the hero of the world. That's why all this was written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, He's the son of God, which means he's God. We've been establishing that. He's not the father and he's not the Holy Spirit. He's God, the son. Got to do a little deep 
doctrinal studying on the Trinity, you guys. We're learning that as we go through the book of John, that there is one God existing in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So by reading what John wrote in this gospel, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And that by believing in him, we may have life in his name. As we believe in Jesus, we're born again, we're given new life under his authority, under his actions, under the victory that he's won for us. Okay, so as we read this story that you've probably been familiar with since childhood, the feeding of the 5,000 or this huge catering problem, I want you to come away from it with more of a trust in Jesus as the Savior and the champion of the world, and that by believing in him, that he is who he says he is, that he's the creator of the universe, he's God, you would have life in all aspects of your life. You would have life in his name. So let's get into it. Verse 1 of chapter 6. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of of Tiberias. I know you're super stoked that we're going to take about two minutes to look at this phrase after these things. Okay. Uh, what's the importance of that phrase? Well, there's a couple of things here. Uh, in Matthew chapter 14, verse 13, Matthew's account of the feeding of the 5,000 takes place just after Jesus heard of the death of John the Baptist, his cousin, his fellow ministry leader, Uh, John the Baptist was the forerunner who prepared the way for the Messiah and then got out of the way. And uh, he pointed to Jesus and Jesus heard that John the Baptist was dead. And so just needed to get away and kind of process as we often do when we hear that someone close to us has passed away. Mark and Luke's version uh, recorded this just after the return of the disciples, after they'd been sent out to preach. And, uh, and yet there's a little bit of confusion, a little hopping around, because as you read the Gospel of John, and as we've been teaching through it, chapter 5 was set in Jerusalem, but chapter 4 and chapter 6 are set in Galilee. So some have suggested that chapter 5 is kind of out of order in, in the compilation, and that it should actually go just before chapter 7. It doesn't really matter. Um, what we need to know is that uh, Jesus is in Galilee during this time. He just uh, gone on a boat across this leer-shaped sea, which is really more of a big lake, maybe the size of Klamath Lake. If you've ever been down to Klamath Falls, uh, that's where I was born and raised, and I always thought, this is like the biggest lake in the world, right? I think it is. Actually, you can Google it and look it up. But, uh, okay, it's not. Man, calm down, people. Geography folks here. Um, it's, uh, it, is a big, it is a big lake, that is Klamath Lake, and the Sea of Galilee is really a small sea. It's more of a lake. But Jesus goes across it about three miles, and he had, verse 2, a great multitude following him. Thousands of people following after Jesus. Why? Because they saw his signs that he performed on those who were diseased. So as Jesus is going from the west over to the east, northeast side of the Sea of Galilee, people know that he's on his way. You can actually watch the, the boat go across this big lake, and, uh, and they're like, well, gosh, this hero is going right over there. I could do a nine-mile hike. How about you? Let's go see where he's going. And so they followed the lake. This happens a couple times in the Gospels where they go around the the outskirts of the lake 
to meet Jesus when he gets to the other side. And it's been said that a crowd always draws a crowd. So by the time they're going through the different villages and everyone's wondering, hey, what's the big commotion? You know, what's all the hubbub, bub? Uh, they say, the hero, he's going over there. He's healing everyone. Come on, let's go. And multitudes would follow and meet Jesus as he gets to the other side. Now, why were they following him? It wasn't necessarily because of a heart of wanting to obey him and live for him, but it was more because they saw the signs that he had performed on anyone who happened to be diseased. And really, this is a mark of Jesus' ministry. It's a really beautiful, sweet thing about Jesus' ministry. Matthew starts out early on in Jesus' life and ministry that he went about Galilee teaching in all the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of disease among the people. I like that Matthew later on in chapter 15 includes in the healing of the lame, blind, mute, that maimed were including. I don't know how people get maimed exactly, especially back in like, you know, 30 AD or 30 AD, you know, like there were no farm implements to really fall, you know, it's like what happened here? Uh, but there were, I mean, lions and tigers and bears, I guess, are maiming people and these folks needed Jesus and Jesus was healing them. I like what Leon Morris says when he looks at the Greek sense of verse two here. He says that the multitude kept following Jesus because they continually saw the signs that he habitually did on the sick. It was a habit of Jesus to do signs and wonders on the sick people. I also like that Morris called it on to the sick. He did these signs on them, uh, for them, to them, but also on them. People were being healed. Now Jesus gets to the other side and he takes a little time for hiatus. It says that Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat with his disciples. So he's over in the area, the region of the sea that's now known as the Golan Heights. Okay, If you go to the Golan Heights today, it's in, this, it's in really a hot spot during the Israeli-Palestinian conflicts that have happened over the last few decades. Uh, immediately on the eastern shore where the pigs jumped off the cliff that were full of demons. There's actually a minefield there today from the 1960s. And so there's all these uh, barbed wire fences and signs that say, you know, do not cross. So if you're ever wondering what happened to the demons that were in the pigs, they all turned into mines, okay? So you don't want to go there. These are some bad mamma demons, okay? Um, also up in the Golan Heights, as you get up into the hills, is the, is the site of the six-day war battles that happened between uh, Israel and Egypt, among other uh, battles that Israel was in. And there's uh, tanks from these epic tank battles that have been blown up and flipped upside down is what seems to be the hand of the Lord was with the Israeli army uh, in this six-day war as they had this incredible victory. Uh, and so Jesus goes up into the Golan Heights, into that area. That's a little bit of what it's like today. And I love this phrase at the end of verse 3. It says, and there he sat with his disciples. The disciples had just come back from a time of ministry, of preaching the gospel of the kingdom and they were in need of some rest. It's a common thing as people come back from uh, missionary journeys, that they need a refresher. They need a rest. Uh, back in 2016, we went on a Nepal trip where we were trekking in the Himalayas, 
preaching the gospel, going up into some of the high places. We went up into some snow. We went up into some cold. We got up in about 14,000 feet at one of our viewpoints. And uh, there's, there's not much heat in any of the little wooden shacks that you stay in up there. And so we were chilly and cold. And when we got back down to kind of one of the main hubs in our journey, uh, we had heard that there was a hot spring in this place of Cypher Vesey. And, uh, and that you could go down there and, and get warm sitting in the hot springs. And so a couple of the team members went down to this hot spring. And as we're going down the stairs, we kind of see like, you know, there's a, it's packed in this hot spring. And it's a little questionable from a distance what the clothing options were with those individuals. And so we essentially just said, okay, we're going to turn our back and it's worth the wait. We're going to wait until everyone kind of clears out and we're going to go and we're going to get warm. And I remember hearing from our guide that just a little farther down from the hot springs, there's a spot where the water comes out of the mountain, hits kind of a natural little tub, and then flows into this giant river that comes down off the Himalayas. Big boulders in this river. It's just gorgeous. You're looking at the Himalayas. And I'm like, man, I'm going to go down below the hot spring. I'm going to find this natural tub, and I'm going to sit in this thing. It is going to be like the best hot spring in the world. So I trek down there, and I find it. It's so exciting. But it's full of all sorts of garbage and possibly fecal matter. I don't know for sure. And I'm like, it's going to be worth it. I'm cleaning this thing out. So I begin to clean out this nasty pool. I mean, it smelled halfway okay, you know. And as we, I clean this thing out, fresh water's coming in. Just fresh is cleaning out the bad, and it's going to be clean, right? No? Anybody? No one's been here before. Nobody's done anything <laughs> All my teammates were looking at me just like you guys were. I'm telling you, it's worth it. We're freezing. And so I get in this pool that I've cleaned out. Kind of, It's like a lazy boy hanging out on the hill, hot water from the mountain, washing over, looking at this Himalaya mountain range in front of me. It was beautiful. Tell the ride home when I think it was pretty clear. I had some sort of parasite, something that had gotten into me that shouldn't be in me. And for a few weeks, I had extreme stomach pain, things that I've never experienced before. And I learned my lesson, and I'm here to tell you, don't go chasing waterfalls. Keep it to the rivers and the lakes. Like you. Okay, but uh, the disciples knew we need a little refresher. We got to find a hot spring tub or something over here on the Golan Heights. And so Jesus gets them away, and they get to spend some time being refreshed by him and with him. You guys ever going to look at me the same again? You're going to be like, that rash on your arm, I know where that's from. Okay, but at least you know where it's from. Um, The disciples were in need of a rest. You know, when Jesus called the disciples, he was in nearly the same area when he went and prayed all night as to which disciples he would call, which men he would call. And in Mark chapter 3, verse 13, it says, He went up on the mountains, and he called to him those he himself wanted. You know that you're a disciple of Jesus today? And that your discipleship all started with Christ sovereignly calling you out of the world because he wanted you. He knows your name, and he has called you There's the sovereignty of God. He's predestined you. He's called you by name. He wants you. And it says he appointed 12 there in Mark 3, 14, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. So what is being a disciple? It's being called by God individually. It's so that you might be with him. Are you spending time with Jesus? Because if you spend time with Jesus, you'll be equipped to go out 
and preach. So there's something about this phrase that, that is uh, encouraging for us to set aside time purposefully to be with Jesus. And I actually like how it's phrased there. There he sat with his disciples. Yeah, we sit with Jesus in our quiet time and our devotional life. But did you know that Jesus sits with you as well? Here he sat with his disciples. And I like, it was Alistair Begg that pointed out the importance of this time away with Jesus. Uh, And I'm going to quote a little bit of him here to bring some encouragement for us to set that time aside. He says, we ought not to think of them all sitting bolt upright as if they were in pews, but rather that they were very naturally spread all over the grass. Some of them would be sitting up. Some of them would be lying down, maybe with their hands behind their head or maybe on their sides, on the grass, some of them chewing on stalks of grass, but all of them would be waiting in anticipation to hear what Jesus would have to say. How lovely it would be to have this kind of time in the presence of Jesus. And while we may not be able to sit on a grassy hill seeing him face to face, we can sit with Jesus individually, pastorally, as a congregation, We can be alone with the Lord, and we must be alone with the Lord to be effectively used by him in the different ministries that God calls each and every one of us to do in his name. We've got to prepare and provide for these times with Jesus, every one of us. And we need to guard for this time with the Lord, every single one of us. When you're in ministry and you're teaching Sunday school or you're thrown up on the stage to help out with worship or you're witnessing the gospel, or even if you're on the janitorial team here and you clean the window tracks at this place, spend time with Jesus, and he will enhance that ministry. He will make that ministry a very fragrant offering to him. You want to beware of the barrenness of a busy life, because just just because your day planner is full doesn't mean you're effective for the Lord. You've got to spend this time away with him. You've got to be poured into so that there's an overspilling in your life and you can pour out to others. And so these disciples are in a time of being poured into by Jesus so that they've got something to pour out. Check out verse four. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews was near. We're not gonna get into a ton of Passover. In fact, there's four different times in John where the Passover is mentioned. Um, It's not so much for chronological purposes as for theological purposes. As you study in depth chapter 6, the the Jews should be reading this account of who Jesus is. They ought to be thinking about Passover. And as they're thinking about Passover, they're going to see that Jesus in chapter 6, that he's the true bread of life. He's better than manna sent from heaven. He is the bread of life sent from heaven. He provides better than manna is provided in the wilderness, better than Moses provided that manna. manner. He provides a way through the sea. We're going to see next week as he calms the storm, just as Moses provided a way for the children to go through the sea. He's a type. Moses was a type of Jesus in doing that. And we're going to see that Jesus is the true bread of life later on in chapter six. And so this, this, chronology of the Passover is supposed to point people towards a theology of who Jesus is. And we move on in verse five, Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him. He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? And so in the midst of the time alone with the disciples, 
probably was about this time, the multitudes made it around the side of the lake and, uh, and he sees them there. Now there's something special about Jesus lifting up his eyes and seeing this multitudes of thousands of peoples coming towards him. The different gospels help us understand it a bit. Look at Matthew 14, 14, that when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude and it says that he was moved with compassion for them. I like this phrase, moved with compassion in the Greek. It's like something like splonknid or something like that. It's a weird Greek word that literally means that Jesus had bowels of compassion for these people. Just he felt it just like in his gut he had compassion. Have you ever had bowels of compassion for people? No, some shaking of the head, like no bowels over here, right? Uh, I used to get that feeling when I would go to restaurants and I would see people eating by themselves. And I was just like, oh, so sad that they're eating by themselves. And I would kind of see like their silhouette, you know, and they're just like, I'm like, oh, he's so lonely, you know? And Lindsay goes, hey, did you ever think that they might want to be by themselves? I was like, that doesn't make any sense. There's not a person in this world that wants alone time. I'm going to go sit by him. So, uh, so that was just one occasion where I'm like, oh, the little guy, he needs a friend. You know? um, and Jesus looks out and he's just groaning. He's got a growling stomach for these people. So Matthew says when he was moved with compassion for them, what did he do? He healed their sick. Mark tells us the same phrase. Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them. And then he tells us why. Because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. Another way to put it is they were like an army without a captain. And later on in chapter 15, we're going to see why that kind of version of it is fitting for this people. But Jesus sees that they're like sheep without a shepherd in this verse here. And, uh, and so what did he do? Mark tells us not only did he heal their sick, but he taught them. You know what people need? They need the move of the spirit in people's lives. They, they need the move of the spirit. There's place for healing. There's place for just the Lord to move in wonderful, marvelous ways. But at the same time, there's also the need for the word of God to be taught. It's been said that the word without the spirit and you'll dry up. And the spirit without the word, and you'll blow up. But the spirit and the word together, you'll grow up. So Jesus is doing just work. The spirit of the Lord is upon him and has anointed him to do these wonderful things. But he also opens up his mouth and he teaches them concerning the kingdom of God. In the midst of it all, he says to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? eat. Luke tells us a a little bit different that as the day began to wear away, the 12 came to him and said, send the multitude away that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions for we're in a deserted place here. I've been there a little bit where after a long day of ministry, you're like, okay, it's time for you guys to go home. Not, not you guys. It was when I was in Corvallis ministering, right? It's like, okay. Uh, And so the disciples are kind of like, man, like we've had a long week and uh, these guys are hungry. They should probably go and we can like have the evening off it from this point on. Um, but Jesus uh, didn't, 
didn't buy that. You know, he's going to end up and saying to them, you find them something to eat. Isn't it interesting that Jesus looked at Philip here? Out of the 12, he goes to Philip. And, you know, what's the point? If you knew Philip, you knew that he was actually the obvious person to ask because he was from this area of Bethsaida. Kind of like if someone came into town, into Prineville, and said, hey, where's a good place to eat around here? You'd be like, oh, man, Dylan's or Mazatlan or, you know, Club Pioneer or whatever. You know, like, oh, it's all good. I'd recommend here. I'd recommend here. And so, hey, Philip, you know, where should, let's go find something to eat. You know, this is your hometown. You got to know what the good places are, where, where we can get food for a good bargain. And verse 6 tells us that Jesus did this to Philip, testing him or putting him to the test. For he himself knew what he would do. Jesus knew the end of the story of the feeding of the 5,000. But he wanted to know if Philip knew how the story was going to end. So he puts him to the test. And how does Philip fare or prove his faith in this test? Well, verse 6. I'm sorry, verse 7. Philip answered him. 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them. That every one of them would even have a little. Philip apparently was a bit of a matter-of-a-fact person. Anyone here kind of, you're just pretty matter-of-fact, you know? Yeah, yep, Lindsay raised her hand. But in a good way. Also rubs people the wrong way sometimes. But no, I'm just joking. Um, I can tease my wife. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of a matter of fact. In fact, in John 14, 8, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough. You know, it's just kind of like, hey, you know, matter of fact, right? Um, Dodd says that Philip was a quick reckoner and a good man of business and therefore more ready to rely on his own shrewd calculations than on unseen resources. And so Philip does just a little quick mental math, a little bit of mental arithmetic. He knows that a denarius was known as an acceptable day's wage for the casual laborer. It would probably buy a day's supply of bread for the average family. But Philip reckoned in his math that if 200 days wages could be raised, about eight months, maybe your NIV version says, that sum would not even go nearly far enough to meet the present need that is here. Philip's answer shows the immensity of the problem. If you had eight months worth of wages, we couldn't even give this amount of people even a little bit. Philip's human ingenuity couldn't solve the problem. It's a little bit like what we find in Numbers chapter 11. The children of Israel are complaining about not having anything to eat. And so the Lord speaks to Moses and said, Oh, you shall eat. Not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, not twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils. Now, I like to eat, but when food starts coming back up and around the nostril bend, um, that's when I usually say I'm stuffed, right? Until it's coming out of your nostrils. And uh goes on to say, it will become loathsome to you because you have despised the Lord who's among you and have wept before him saying, why did we ever come out of Egypt? And Moses said, the people who I am among are 600,000 men on foot. Yet you've said, I will give them meat that they may eat for a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to provide enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them 
to provide enough for them? Like Moses is kind of in a Philip state here, or Philip's in a Moses state, saying, are we going to kill every sheep that's ever existed on the Arabian Peninsula? Are we going to get every fish out of the sea to provide for 600,000 men on foot and just like the gospel account, not even numbering the women and children that also need food? Philip's response betrays the fact that he can think only at the level of the marketplace. He's got his eyes only on the natural world. Well, let's see, one denarius is a common day's wage, and 200 denarii, eight months' wages. Philip is quick to look for human solutions. His problem comes up and his mind starts going, how can I solve this in the flesh? He hasn't quite reached out to the Lord for the wisdom yet. And we're like this. When the problem comes along, you know, we think we've got to fix it according to our ways. And we forget to cry out to the Lord and to seek the Lord for wisdom. I'm getting a little older and a little bit wiser. I don't know if you know that or not. Now that I turned 39, watch out world, because the wisdom is just flowing out of this guy. And I'm starting to learn like, man, when the problem comes along, let's try to go to the Lord first. Let's petition the Lord for wisdom in this situation. Some ways that I've been seeing this happen is sometimes in these work projects that you come across that things work in and you've tried and you've tried and you've tried again and it's not working. A couple weeks ago, uh, Adam and I were trying to move a couple of steers at Clay McCarty's place and trying to load them up into a horse trail. And so we had our horses and we just spent the whole day working cows and moving cows and so kind of showed up like, yeah, we'll get this done for you, Clay and Aaron. You guys stand over there and hold the gate open for us, you know. And we get out there, and these wild steers are jumping over fences into the neighbor's property. We're getting them out, and they're just making a break for it every time. We're at dead runs, jumping over irrigation pipe over and over and over again. And we're like, and the Lord's like, hey, guess what you haven't done yet? Go ahead, guess. What do you think I haven't done yet? Anybody? Anybody? Nobody? Nobody here. Okay, I'm going to tell you, okay? So I tell Adam, hey, Adam, have you heard of the latest craze these days in stockmanship, handling stock? He's like, no, what is it? I go, it's praying. And he's like, oh, I should have thought of that. And so we prayed. Then I think we had one more break by these animals And then the next time around, they went right into their pen to get loaded up into the trailer. And that's not the first time that's happened to me. This is something that's kind of regular in my life that I, you know, I get fooled quite a few times. And then finally, it's like, we should totally bring this before the Lord. Yesterday, I was doing a little bit of hunting and I got to, first time in 20 years that I've gotten elk. And so I shoot an elk and it uh, runs away and I start tracking it and uh, it, it beat me like I can't find this thing. And so I uh, go back to my friends, and I'm like, man, guys, I don't know where this thing went. And so like, okay, we'll go help you track this thing down. And so uh, we start heading off, and the Lord's like, maybe you should just save some time and pray right now. I'm like, oh, hey, let's pray, let's pray first. And we prayed and said amen, and it was Adam who was there who goes, there it is right there. He puts his binoculars up. It was laying under a tree, probably 25, 35 yards from us. And as I was walking around, I had already seen it, but I thought it looked like a boulder. There's no boulders around in this area. There's not a single boulder. But, oh, yeah, there's this boulder over there. 
It's got hairy stuff on it. And I'm going to look over here. I'm looking around. I'm like, oh, I'll go back and check that boulder. No, totally forget. Head on back. And it's like, turns out it was the hairy boulder that was laying under the tree. And hair it was. But guys, I just want to encourage you. Be quick to cry out to the Lord. He gets so much glory in those times when, when it's just, it's an impossible thing. It shows that we got nothing and he is everything. He is to be praised. And so as we move on in verse eight, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother said to him, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? And so we have this lad, we have this little boy, young man, little boy. He's got his lunchbox. Do you guys remember the lunchboxes from the 80s? Anybody have like a really cool lunchbox? You remember your, man, I remember mine. I had like this, um, it was like a matchbox cars lunchbox, but these cars had like four wheel drive tires, like mudden tires. And you could see like this little track that they would drive around on my lunchbox. And I just sit there and be like, it went like this, you know? Of course, they had a thermos in there as well, you know, training us early to be dependent on caffeine. Like, might as well put a thermos in there so they can have some coffee at elementary school, right? Uh, my sisters had the Cabbage Patch Kid lunchbox, you know. And here we have this little boy. There he is on the side of the Sea of Galilee, you know. He's got his Rambo lunchbox or whatever it is, and, and uh, he's just about ready to dig into it. And Andrew spots him. Only the fourth gospel here in John specified what this little guy had in his lunchbox calls them barley loaves or barley biscuits, which was the inexpensive bread of the day for the poor folks. And we see that there were these small fish. They were a pickled fish, kind of a sardine. And the study on them is that they weren't really so much like the protein in of them themselves. They were a, like a relish to have on your biscuit. And so as Andrew fi- finds you know, some bread and some fish, first of all, he's not finding like some big old loaves of bread. And this incredible, I just came across these five giant loaves of bread. And like, look at these salmon. Oh man, like even if it was giant loaves and some salmon, it still wouldn't be enough for all these people. Turns out it's some biscuits and some relish, okay? That's what they've got to work with. At least that's what they think they've got uh, to work with here. In fact, Andrew even says, but what are they among so many? Andrew's point, of course, was that this tiny meal was ludicrously inadequate to meet the need. And John mentions that to kind of heighten the miracle that's about to take place. And so in view of the size of the crowd, this tiny meal was scarcely worth mentioning. I mean, don't you think like 5,000 men, I'm going to spoiler alert for a second, when you do the math and look at what even Matthew had to say, it was 5,000 men, and that doesn't include the women and the children. And so some believe it was upwards around twenty to 25,000 people that were there. And if you were around that massive a crowd, would you even, would it be worth mentioning, like, hey, this kid over here has a lunchbox with some biscuits and relish. Yeah, just don't even bring that up, you know. But he does, just to point out, like, we got nothing, Lord. Kind of reminds me of when Elisha had one of these moments where he'd feed 100 men. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 42, Then a man came from Baal Shalisha and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley bread and newly ripened grain in his knapsack. That seems like a good start, right? He's got 20 loaves of bread. That should be good for uh, feeding the people. He said, Give them to the people that they may eat. But his servant said, What? Shall I set this before a 100 men? He said, 
Give it to the people that they may eat, for thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. So we see this is the pattern of the Lord, that he's able to provide something out of nothing. Taylor says, small things are not always contemptible. It all depends on the hands in which they are. And so they've got five loaves and two fish. When I was a high school pastor, I taught the kids, like, you can kind of act like a gangster and kind of be like, five loaves, two fish. It'll kind of help you remember what he had to work with. So let's all see it. No, no gangs, touchy subject in this town right now. Okay, my bad. Look at verse 10. Jesus said, make the people sit down. This is right after the whole five loaves and some relish. Okay, make them all sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. The five loaves and the two fish was enough for the Lord's purpose. They sit down on this green grass. I appreciate this detail from John. I like a good picnic. I like a good grassy picnic. I like to lounge in the grass and eat, especially the eat part. doesn't really matter where I am. Just give me some food, basically. And the men sat down in an orderly... The Lord is a a God of order, and and as Luke's gospel tells us, he set him down in ranks of 50. He who knew what he was going to do, as it said earlier on, had no need to panic when he was confronted by this huge catering problem. He proceeded about his work with a perfect orderliness. So, as Matthew 14, 21 says, those who had eaten were about 5,000 men, besides the women and children, 20 to 25,000 people here. In verse 11, it says, Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples. So Jesus took the loaves and gave thanks. That phrase, gave thanks, is the Greek word eucharisto, or the eucharist. When we do communion, it's been called the eucharist, and it's a time of giving God thanks for what he did on the cross for us. Eucharisto, in the Greek, the definition is to give thanks or something special for the week that we find ourselves in thanksgiving you guys woke up this morning and you yawned and you thought i wonder if he's going to do a special thanksgiving message for us well here it is right jesus gave thanksgiving it speaks of being thankful isn't that crazy that jesus who is god who created the universe is thanking God the Father for provision. And if Jesus takes the time to thank God, to have gratitude, to thank the Father, it's a good practice probably for us to do the same. To show hearts of thankfulness. And if Jesus had used the old Hebrew prayer for thanksgiving, it might have said something like this, Blessed art thou, O Lord, Our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Picture that. You've got five biscuits and some relish. Blessed are you, O Lord God. You're the King of the universe, and you bring bread from the earth. That's what he's got, okay? And lickety-blam, with no sleight of hand, he's going to feed these 25,000 people. But I like what Spurgeon says about this prayer, this prayer of thanksgiving. For five little cakes and two sprats, 
Christ gave thanks to the Father, apparently a meager cause for praise. But Jesus knew that he could make of them, and therefore he gave thanks for what they could presently accomplish. He quotes Augustine, God loves us for what we are becoming. So Christ gave thanks for these trifles because he saw unto what they would grow. Remember one year, it was my, I was a fresh youth pastor, 19 years old. Uh, actually, I had just turned 20, and I was a new youth pastor, and I'd been studying to teach Philippians. That was the first book I ever taught through. And I just felt like I didn't have anything to give the high school group. I'd studied, and I just felt like my notes were pitiful, and I had nothing to give. And my good friend Jason Dicast prayed for me. And he prayed for a fishes and loaves moment in my life. That all I had was this meager little Philippians chapter 2 study that I was going to try to give the kids. And that the Lord would increase it. And that's when I first started preaching for an hour and a half. I had nothing. Now look, you guys. Isn't it great? Okay. Sorry. Let's get back to the Thanksgiving message, huh? Check out the Psalms in chapter 69 verse 30. I will praise the name of my God with a song, and I will magnify him with thanksgiving. As we learn from Jesus, the five loaves, the trifles, as Spurgeon put it, this meager offering, meager thing to thank the Lord for, what we are doing, even with the five and the two, is we are magnifying God with thanksgiving. Have you ever thanked the Lord for the meager thing that you have in your life? And you're thankful even for it. As you do that, you're magnifying the Lord and making much of him. Philippians chapter 4 verse 6 tells us to be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to the Lord. So Jesus is here. He's got five loaves, two fish, 25,000 people that need to be fed. And he wasn't anxious Instead, he prayed to the Lord, and notice it says, with thanksgiving. When our anxiety level begins to raise, the anxious these days, all the crazy, there's, there's not like one crazy thing going on right now. There's, I don't know, five crazy things, at least, maybe more, going on right now in our present culture. We're just like, I don't even know what to do with all of this. Go to the Lord in prayer. I butchered it the first service, and what do you know I learned? I'm going to butcher it the second service as well. The old hymn says something like, Oh, what praise we often forfeit. Oh, what needless shame we bear. Something like that. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Anybody know that? how that actually goes? Oh, what. This is why you do your studying before... You get up in public speak, everybody. Let this be a lesson to you. Nobody wants to hear you try to figure out the lyrics to a song. We should carry everything to God in prayer. Okay? We miss out on joy. We miss out on provision because we don't go to the Lord in prayer. And so when we are anxious, go to the Lord with thanksgiving. It was either Oswald Chambers or Oswald Sanders. I get them confused. In my opinion, there's a few too many Oswalds in the earth. So, you know, but Oswald Chamber and Oswald Sanders, one of them said this. God's past faithfulness demands our present trust. And as we are in times of anxiety, we can look back and say, Lord, you've never failed me yet. And I know that you're going to be faithful in the future. So Jesus here leads by example in that. 
He blesses God. First Timothy chapter four, verses three through five says that uh, there's a mark of depravity in the world that people will be forbidding to marry, commanding others to abstain from foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. So as we bring our meal before the Lord and we thank the Lord for it, there's a sanctification that takes place there as we're thankful for our food. Second Timothy tells us that in the last days, perilous times will come. We, we, I know we're living in the last days, but we're seeing some peril, aren't we? We're seeing some especially awful times. Something that marks those times is that men will be lovers of self. They'll be lovers of money. They'll be boasters and proud and blasphemers. They'll be disobedient to parents. There's something else that they'll be. Unthankful. Did you know that to be unthankful is a mark of depravity and rebellion against God? Jesus leads the charge by showing thankfulness to the Father for the five loaves and the two fish. And so it says, he distributed to the disciples and the disciples then to those sitting down and likewise of the fish, you might underline this, as much as they wanted. John stresses here how lavish the supply was. People ate as much as they wanted. This this goes way far beyond the little tidbit that 200 denarii worth of bread would have bought. It shows that Jesus is the true bread of heaven that satisfies better than even the manna in the desert could satisfy. Philip had done the mental math and had tried to calculate how much would have to be spent for each person to even have a little bit. But here they see they get to have as much as they'd ever desire. Jesus turned the five loaves and the two fishes into an all-you-can-eat buffet. A sort of a golden corral of the Golan Heights. You know, anybody here love a good buffet? Man, I am a fan. Thankful for the sneeze guards, but I love a good buffet, right? Grew up on Norse Chuckwagon in Klamath Falls. There's a reason that I am the way that I am. And you can thank the buffets for that. These five loaves, Trap says, these five loaves by a strange kind of arithmetic were multiplied by division and added by subtraction. Only the Lord can do that. And so verse 12 says, when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Collecting what was left over at the end of a meal was a Jewish custom. And they used baskets, a basket that was very a large basket could be used for fish or big bulky objects. In fact, same language that was used when Paul escaped. Um, I think he mentions it in like Galatians chapter 1. He had to escape a city over a wall by jump, jumping into a basket and being let down. It's the same word of a basket. So 12 big man-hiding size baskets, okay? Um, when the Lord, something we can learn, a good lesson for us, that when the Lord supplies his people's needs, there is abundance, but no waste. We can give and give and give, 
And the Lord is so abundantly to provide so that we could be generous as well. Look at Proverbs eleven twenty four. There is one who scatters with his generosity, and yet he increases more. You know, just, it's just like the Lord, isn't it? That when we have his blessing and we pour it out, we become like distribution centers. It comes in so we can give it out. It comes in so we can give it out. The Lord never wanted us to just be warehouses that store up and store up. He wants us to be giving it out. There is one who scatters yet increases more. And in the same way, the Lord's blessing came and it filled 12 baskets left over. Verse 14, then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who's come into the world. That's, that is a good conclusion that they've come to. This seems to be the fulfillment of, say, Genesis 49.10, that a scepter shall not depart from Judah. Man, a prophecy about the Messiah coming. Prophet uh, Moses said that in Deuteronomy 18.15, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Moses prophesied of someone who would be greater than who would come, and they ought to hear him. And so as Jesus is healing and multiplying bread and working all of his signs and wonders, they had a great conclusion. This must be the prophet. In Acts chapter 7, verse 37, Stephen, in his message to the Jews, told them that, that was, it was Jesus who was the prophet Moses was speaking of. No doubt Jesus' provision of so much bread to so many people in the wilderness of Bethsaida caused their minds to go towards Moses who brought manna in the wilderness. And so verse 15, what did the people do though in application of their conclusion? When Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. You know, it wasn't Jesus' time for one thing, but he saw that they had revolution in their eyes. They saw that this is a guy that people could follow whether he wants to or not, we may have to kidnap him, even if it's just to set him up as a puppet king so that we can lead a revolution against the Romans and take back our land. His feeding them there in the wilderness confirmed their assurance that he was the man of the hour. Jesus had already shown his power to banish disease. Now he can banish hunger. Maybe he can banish the Romans. And you know what? Jesus would go to Jerusalem, but it wouldn't be to beat away the Romans. He would go with a spear, but not to bring judgment. He would go to receive a spear into his side. They wanted Jesus to become their king, but before he would wear a crown of gold, he would wear a crown of thorns. Before he would sit on the throne, he would hang on a cross. The crucifixion would be for Jesus, his coronation. Jesus had another plan. His kingdom was going to be so much greater than just beating the Romans out of Judea. It's going to be to solve the dilemma of sin in men's hearts so that his kingdom could grow and be a kingdom that would never end. It would be free of the plague of sin and death. The sins would be bought and paid for by his own blood and his kingdom would truly come and his will would really be done. And so if you'll set your things aside that story kind of ends with Jesus running away from 
this crowd or leaving this crowd because he knew that that revolution in their eyes was not a healthy thing. He's even going to send the disciples away so they're not poisoned with that idea. And, uh, and we're going to see him move in another mighty way next week. Will you guys go ahead and pray with me? And we'll close today. Oh Lord, we want to protect against coming to the Bible and just hearing a fun story about a multiplication of loaves and fish. Kind of a cute story of a boy with a lunchbox and walk away today saying, isn't it good to share? We'd be missing the main point here. That we would see in your power that you are worth trusting. You are worth looking to first thing in our heart. Worth trusting with our dilemmas and our problems. And so Lord, teach us today to trust in you. That we might believe that Jesus is the hero. The savior of the world. That he is God. Not only did he create and have great forethought of saving us, but he also came with his precious, spotless blood and has atoned for the sins of the world. That as we believe in you, we would have life in your name for whatever it is in our present circumstance. Lord, we live in a day and age that's so crazy, Lord. Our, our nation is very anxious, very angry. All sides, just blaming and frustrated and afraid and fed up and growing violent, getting long in the tooth. And we are in desperate need of help. And so, Lord, we pray, we turn from anxiety for our nation. We turn to pray for healing, Lord. That you would rebuke our nation for their sin and that you would do a work in our country that would cause repentance to break out, salvation to break out, that Oregon would have life in Jesus' name, that the United States would have life in Jesus' name. Lord, there's fear, there's not sure what to do with a problem of death or illness or sickness. There's just frustration with presidents and presidents-elect and not-elect and all kinds of things and and Lord, just we, we are without hope if we don't have hope in you, Lord. And so we turn to you with anxious hearts and we say, Lord, have your way in our nation. Help us to trust you. Whoever's our president, Lord, it just makes us long for our home when you are our king. Lord, all the problems in our home life, all of the businesses that are being shut down these weeks that just are going to be closing and businesses that we care about, businesses that we love to frequent, businesses that affect our economy, where we turn to you and say, Lord, just move in my save and rescue where saving and rescuing is needed and use trial and closures and lack of funds to turn people's hearts toward you, Lord. As a friend of mine said at the beginning of the pandemic, Lord, milk this mess. Lord, use this for your glory. You've been so faithful in the past. We know that you're going to be faithful in the future. And Lord, whatever meager rations we have on any level, whether it's 
We've got meager rations in our marriage. I've got nothing to give my wife or my husband. I've got nothing left. Lord, multiply that loaf and that fish. Discipling our children. I've got nothing to give, Lord. Give us something to give. Being evangelists to the lost in our workplace or on our teams or in our neighborhood, Lord. I feel like I've got nothing to give. Lord, would you increase? Give us something to give out, Lord. Let us be a light for you. And be glorified. Take this meager, trifly ration and multiply it so that there's baskets left over. And we will give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.